The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Thomas Galligan. He is the principal scientist for food additives and supplements at the Center for Science and the Public Interest, which is a nonprofit, independent consumer advocacy organization that is focused on food and health. CSBI is working to improve regulation of food chemicals and dietary supplements and get unsafe chemicals and ineffective supplements out of our food supply. Before joining CSPI in 2021, Dr. Galligan was a toxicologist at the Environmental Working Group, where he led efforts to promote the use of safer chemicals in personal care products, foods, and other consumer goods, and to educate consumers about the chemicals in the products they consume every day. Dr. Galligan earned his PhD in biomedical sciences with an emphasis on toxicology, endocrinology, and environmental health from the Medical University of South Carolina. He also earned a BS in dairy science from Virginia Tech. Welcome, Dr. Galligan. It's a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you so much for having me. I have to ask you, how did you get from dairy science to biomedical sciences? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and a funny story. I was you know, sort of always interested in, in nature and the environment. And I was planning to go to vet school, actually, when I was an undergrad. And I took a class called Livestock and the Environment, where I learned all about how animal agriculture can impact and harm ecosystems. And it just sort of opened this whole new world for me and thinking about toxic chemicals and, and how that relates to environmental health and human health. And so I changed my career plans from vet school to uh, a PhD in biomedical sciences. That's interesting. The more I learn about the broader environment and how we are all a part of nature, it draws me too to focus on the environment. And that brings us to our topic today, which is this ubiquitous soup of chemical contaminants that we find in our water, in our food. And to a large extent, I think consumers believe that if a product is sold in the marketplace, it must be safe. And I love the Center for Science and the Public Interests Chemical Cuisine website, and I will provide a link to that for our listeners but it really focuses specifically on food dyes and additives and how some of them are safer than others and ones that we want to really get out of our food system. So I thought what we'd do today, based on some recent press releases that CSPI put out, I thought we'd focus on titanium dioxide and then we'll work our way into food dyes. Does that sound like a plan? That sounds like a perfect plan. All right. What is titanium dioxide? So titanium dioxide is a color additive. So it's not a dye per se, but it is a color additive. It's used to make foods look white or more opaque, sometimes more shiny. And it's a mineral. So it is basically titanium and two oxygens. That's how it's, that's why it has that name. 
And it can form nanoparticles that the, the molecules can sort of agglomerate into different size particles. And, and some of those are in the nano size range. So below 100 nanometers across. And I mentioned that because nanoparticles, their properties are a little bit different than larger size particles, and they have unique toxicological properties. And the European Food Safety Authority recently took a, a new look at titanium dioxide and its safety and its use in food. And what they determined was that the nanoparticles that are present in this color additive can actually accumulate in the body and potentially damage our DNA. And that's really concerning because that's one mechanism through which a chemical can cause cancer. So because of that assessment, titanium dioxide is now banned for use in food in Europe. But it is not banned in the United States to date. That is correct. Yes. The FDA hasn't taken a look at titanium dioxide since the 1960s. And I'm not even sure that they had thought about or had the capacity to assess nanoparticles back when they first reviewed the safety of titanium dioxide. So it's not something that they accounted for when they were initially assessing it for safety and and approving it for use in food. And so we think it's long past due that FDA take, take a new look at it, especially considering what EFSA has come out with just recently. Right. I usually tell consumers when I do any kind of nutrition education the importance of checking food labels and specifically the ingredient labels. And if it was as easy as looking at ingredient label and looking for titanium dioxide and being able to say, oops, I don't want that in my food. I don't want that in my body or my children's bodies. It'd be easy enough to put it back on the shelf. But it's my understanding that titanium dioxide may not explicitly appear on food labels. And instead, it could be hidden behind vague terms such as artificial color or color added. Is that true? That is true. So a couple of thoughts. One, I think the one of the unifying principles of our work at CSPI when it comes to additives is that the burden shouldn't fall on the consumers to have to make that choice and scan ingredient labels at the store to figure out whether something harmful is in their food. That burden needs to fall on industry and the FDA or regulators. And that's not happening. So we have this unfortunate situation where, yeah, we have these harmful additives in our food and it falls to consumers to have to make the choice and do the work themselves to avoid them. So that's one thought. And then to your actual question, there are some color additives that have to be labeled by name on the ingredient list, but titanium dioxide is not one of them. So it may very well be hiding behind these vague terms. Hmm. How is that decision made, whether or not a particular additive has to be stated by name versus it could be lumped under a broader vague term like an artificial color or color added? Yeah, so at the federal level, there are sort of two broad categories of color additives. Their names are a little bit confusing. There are Color additives that are subject to batch certification. So what that means is that those colors, before they can be used in food, the manufacturers actually have to send a sample of each batch to the FDA, who then does tests on it to make sure that it conforms to the specifications outlined in the regulations. And then they are allowed to be used in food. And those ones have to be labeled by name. And those are 
the yellow fives, the red 40, the red three. So you see FD&C yellow six, for example, that's a batch certified color and it has to be labeled by name. And then there's the other group, which is those that are exempt from batch certification. And these are naturally derived, for example, beet juice or titanium dioxide. These ones do not have to be batch certified. There's no testing that FDA does to confirm that they are meeting any specifications. And those ones don't have to be labeled by name on the ingredient list. Okay. Now, I was looking at the press release that CSPI sent out, and I thought it was interesting just how many foods contain titanium dioxide. Like, you wouldn't even think of it. Macaroni and cheese, Campbell's Healthy Request Chunky Chicken Corn Chowder, Marzetti uses it to brighten up their cream cheese fruit dip. A cream cheese in itself is white. I don't understand why that would have to right. be added, right. you know, or fat free half and half manufactured by Kroger. Little Debbie adds it to fudge rounds. And the list is of more than 1800 brand name food products that contain titanium dioxide. Yeah. And those are just the ones we know about because again, it could be hiding behind those vague terms. So those are just products that have chosen to list it by name. But I think it's important to note that titanium dioxide and really all color additives, they're not necessary from a nutritional standpoint, from a food safety standpoint. They're there exclusively to make the food look more appealing to consumers. That's it. So the level of risk that we should be willing to accept when it comes to these totally unnecessary additives is extremely low. And so in this case, with a chemical that might be causing DNA damage, there's really no excuse for it to be used in food. I agree. And I actually did a little bit more research. As a consumer, I want to advise other consumers, well, if I don't want any of it in my diet, if I bought organic food, would it be included there? And indeed, titanium dioxide is not permitted in organic food. However, it is used in mineral sun protection in natural cosmetics. So if you buy organic food, you can be assured that you're not going to have that additive. But there are a lot of sunscreen products that do contain it. And we look at those mineral-based sunscreens as being superior to others. Do you have anything that you want to add about food versus cosmetics here? So I no longer work in the cosmetic space at CSPI. That was in my previous job. But I would just say that the exposure is different, obviously, ingestion versus topical. So the risks that might be present when titanium dioxide is used in food are going to be different than those that are posed by the use in cosmetics. Right. Unless, of course, the cosmetic is also an oral product, a, a lipstick or a toothpaste or something like that. Sure. Well, this is good to know. And what is CSPI doing then to help us get titanium dioxide out of food? We are trying to think about what the solution is here. And I think the solution is going to have to come from FDA or industry. So we're going to work with our team here and our coalition partners like EWG and other NGOs who work in the environmental health space and consumer advocacy space to try and figure out what we need to do to get this harmful additive out of our food and take that burden away from consumers. I think that's admirable. I'm really concerned about people who don't have a choice in the marketplace. If you have access to organic food and you can afford it, that's wonderful. But I think about children who might be in daycares, or I think about people who are living in institutions that get these highly processed foods. 
and they are being exposed without their consent to these potentially harmful chemicals. So I think perhaps petitioning FDA, letting medical groups, I would think that the American Academy of Pediatrics would want to have a say in this as well. Yeah, I would hope so. All those things you pointed out are exactly why this needs to fall on industry and FDA to resolve, because there are people who don't have the luxury of scanning ingredient lists before they consume something. So we need our regulators to step in and protect those people. Absolutely. All right. We've got to take a break because we're halfway through. I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Thomas Galligan. He is the principal scientist for food additives and supplements at the Center for Science and the Public Interest, which is an independent consumer advocacy organization focused on food and health. All right. I think we should save the second half of our show to look at food dyes, because there again, when you look at the ubiquitous nature of food dyes in the marketplace, it's quite extraordinary. So you had recently sent out a press release about red dye number three in particular. Now, I have to say that I have been a dietitian for over 40 years, and I remember when food dyes first became an issue This was decades ago when a link had been made to food dyes and children's behavior. So, for example, it seemed to exacerbate excitability. The children with ADHD, for example, their parents were advised, don't give your kids foods with food dye in them. But if you look at the numbers of foods in the marketplace that contain food dye, it's quite remarkable. And so for all of those decades, we had evidence of harm, but once again, the FDA is not banning these chemicals. So tell me what you want our listeners to know about food dyes. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack here. So RED3 in particular is plagued by two issues. And one is sort of the broader conversation around synthetic food dyes, which you just talked about, the impacts of these chemicals on kids' behavior. So just returning to my previous point, these are the color additives that are subject to batch certification. So these are the FD&C colors, the red 40s, the the red 3, the yellow 5, the yellow 6, all those. We have known, like you just said, since the, I think the 1970s, or, or there's been suspicion at least since the 1970s about the impacts of these color additives on kids' behavior. And evidence has mounted over the years, and it sort of culminated in this report that was published last year by the California Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, or OEHA. They published this report that systematically and comprehensively reviewed all of the evidence, including 27 human clinical trials, and they concluded that these food dyes do in fact cause or exacerbate neurobehavioral problems in some kids. And then Red 3 specifically, an entirely separate issue, Red 3 causes thyroid cancer when it's given to rodents. We've known this since the 80s. And in fact, the FDA banned the use of Red 3 in cosmetics and externally applied drugs in 1990 because of this link to cancer. And they said they were going to ban it in food. And here we are, 32 years later, and nothing has been done. They still haven't banned it. Red 3 is still in our food and in drugs today. Mm. Well, I've got your press release in front of me and I did some more research. I was alarmed. Actually, I was shocked 
to read that despite the risks that you clearly outlined, some prescription drugs still contain red three, including Vivance, which is billed as the number one prescribed branded ADHD medication, contains red dye number three, despite what we know about its link to behavioral problems. How is that even possible? Yeah, there's some real irony there because the symptoms caused by synthetic food dyes, these neurobehavioral problems, overlap with the symptoms of ADHD. So if you have an ADHD drug that contains a synthetic food dye, (laughs) it's causing the problem perhaps that it's trying to fix. So there's a real irony there. You know, the use of synthetic food dyes in drugs is, I think, fairly complicated because there perhaps is some utility in having drugs be different colors so they can be identified easily and whatnot. Mm. But ultimately, it just seems plain silly that this drug for ADHD contains a synthetic food dye. Right. Well, and there are so many candies and products that are marketed to children that contain them. Again, you've got a great list of just some of the foods. You've got Betty Crocker's Fruit by the Foot. We know that these dyes are used to mask the fact that some of these foods don't really have as much fruit in them as we might think because of the label or the name. There's even red dye in products such as Betty Crocker's Loaded Mashed Potatoes, Saffron Yellow Rice, and Here's one similar to the ADHD medication, Pediasure Grow and Gain Kids Ready to Drink Strawberry Shake contains red dye number three, but no strawberries. Right. Yeah. And I think that highlights one of the most concerning points about, again, this burden being on consumers is that it's not just these conspicuously brightly colored foods that contain these synthetic food dyes. It's things like loaded mashed potatoes and Pediasure. And it makes it harder for consumers to identify and avoid these foods that might be harming their children. It just points to the fact that consumers have to review the ingredient labels. And that is just a burden that is unreasonable. And for many people, like you mentioned before, with titanium dioxide, it's not necessarily possible for everybody, people in medical facilities, children at daycare, they don't have the luxury of the capacity to look at the foods that they're being served. Right. There was a product that was mentioned in one of your news releases that I pulled out because I was alarmed. This is Ortega guacamole style dip. It actually has more salt than avocado powder. There's no avocado in it. The first three ingredients are water, canola oil, and modified food starch. And here's one of those products. If you read down the list of ingredients, you see yellow number five, blue number one. So where it gets its color to look like an avocado is from these food dyes, not from the vegetable itself, even though the label has vegetables on it. So the consumer must read food labels and not take a product label or what it might look like through the jar for granted. Right. Can't take it at face value. That's a really great example of of a food that is using food dyes instead of a whole food like an avocado. Right. Okay. We should talk about the Delaney Clause because this is where I'm so confused. Amendments to the nation's food laws passed in 1958 and 1960 
they included a provision called the Delaney Clause, which prohibits the approval of any food or color additive if it is shown to cause cancer in people or animals. Is it that these dyes are somehow grandfathered in? Is that why they are still in our food supply? Yeah, so with Red 3, it's sort of a, a complicated bureaucratic problem that led to their continued use today. So back when Congress passed the Food Additive Amendment and the Color Additive Amendment, they basically said that all color additives had to be reapproved by FDA. So they were, they were put on a provisional list. And then from that provisional list, they could get moved to a permanently approved list if FDA approved them. So FDA approved RED3 for use in ingested drugs and foods and hadn't done so yet for cosmetics and externally applied drugs. So by the time that the industry came around and asked for RED3 to be approved for cosmetics and externally applied drugs, this concern about cancer had emerged. And so FDA ultimately concluded again in 1990 that RED3 does cause cancer in animals, and therefore they canceled those provisional uses, which again were cosmetics and externally applied drugs. But because it had already been approved permanently in food and ingested drugs, they said they had to do a separate action to ban them in those products. And again, here we are 32 years later, and they haven't done it. Mm. And you know, the shame of it is it's to the detriment of our children. So whatever profit motive may be involved in these decisions, I can't imagine how we would put profit ahead of children's health. Let's talk about what's going on in California, because California often leads the country when it comes to environmental reforms. They have an Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, as you mentioned earlier. What are they doing? Yeah, so OEHA engaged in a multi-year-long process to review the effects of synthetic food dyes on children's neurobehavior. And they published this authoritative report last year, which I mentioned previously, April of 2021. And they concluded that these food dyes do, in fact, cause neurobehavioral problems in kids. They reviewed 27 human clinical trial studies. They, they reviewed animal evidence. They reviewed in vitro evidence. And they, they reached this conclusion by considering all of that evidence. So this is the most authoritative assessment of this impact to date. And we are now asking the California Department of Public Health to take that report and actually do something to protect kids in California from synthetic food dyes. Because the state of California has already determined that these synthetic food dyes are a problem. And so now we're asking the state of California to do something about it. And so what we've actually done is we've submitted a petition to the Department of Public Health in California, asking them that they require foods and supplements that contain synthetic food dyes to bear a warning label so that consumers can know right up front, very easily, that these foods, one, that contain the food dye, and two, that the food dye could be harming their children. I love that they are looking at requiring warning labels. I think that that is a very effective way to at least alert a potential buyer. What can listeners do to help move the FDA to take action on these potentially harmful ingredients in our food supply? I think it comes down to, well, a number of things. In terms of putting pressure on the FDA, 
consumers can be reaching out to their senators and their congresspeople and asking them to make food chemical safety a higher priority at the federal level. You know, I think part of the reason that we're not seeing any movement on, say, Red 3 from FDA probably just comes down to resources and priority. And, you know, they don't have enough people or enough time or enough money to do it. And so it's just sort of wallows for decades instead of just getting checked off. You know, it's just not a priority for them, seemingly. Otherwise, they would have done it. Mm -hmm. So consumers can be asking their representatives in Congress to make this a top priority. And then the mighty dollar can do a lot of work. We can move markets by changing demand. And so even though it is frustrating and difficult, if you have the capacity to avoid buying products that contain these synthetic food dyes and these other harmful additives, and you let these companies know that we don't want foods that contain these products, maybe you'll start moving the market and they'll start making products that are safer and don't use these harmful additives. Yeah. And, you know, I also think that today we have the power of social media and there are so many parent groups that are focused on cleaning up the environment for the safety of our children that I think this is a real call to action, not only to our senators and representatives, but also to our networks, our wide, expansive networks of neighbors and parent associations, school groups, etc. I want to go back to your chemical cuisine because it's a wonderful place for those of us who are concerned about additives. You've got a long listing of different additives so people can assess whether or not they want to consume them or not. Anything from colors, dyes, and even artificial sweeteners, for example, are on here. I want to give you a chance, though, to bring forth anything you want from the Chemical Cuisine website. Well, sure. But actually, I first want to respond to something you just said. Okay. I, I think you're exactly right that the movement has to start with people. We have to build pressure with our social groups, with our friends, with within schools. And so beyond just you're reaching out to your your senator in Congress, you can also be talking to your school administrators or your local representatives, your, your city council or your state senators and, and assembly people. So you can attack this from the local all the way to the federal level if you want to be engaged. So I just wanted to put that call to action out too. Good. And then beyond the synthetic food dyes and titanium dioxide today, as you mentioned, chemical cuisine or resource on our website covers a wide number of additives. And we, we rate things from safe all the way to avoid with a couple of ratings in between, like caution or certain people should avoid. And I think maybe the, the only other thing that I would mention is that we're working really hard on the artificial sweeteners aspect of foods as well. In particular, there are four that have been linked to cancer with varying degrees of strength of evidence. The one that we're most concerned about is aspartame, mm. which is widely used in diet sodas. And we've been pushing and campaigning for years to try and get aspartame out of food. And we have just learned last year that the International Agency for Research on Cancer has agreed to finally look at and assess whether aspartame causes cancer. They're going to rate its safety. And this is an authoritative international group that's part of the World Health Organization. And so in 2023, in June, they will actually be doing that. And that's really exciting for us. And we're confident that IARC will agree that aspartame does in fact pose a carcinogenic hazard to people. And that will give us the ammunition we need to take this and finally get it removed from our food here in the U.S. 
Fantastic. Well, unfortunately, Dr. Galligan, we're out of time, but I want to thank you for being my guest today. And in closing, I need to remind our listeners that you've been listening to Food Sleuth Radio. It's produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank Dr. Thomas Galligan, Principal Scientist for Food Additives and Supplements at the Center for Science and the Public Interest. I'll provide a link, Dr. Galligan, to the Chemical Cuisine. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me.